It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, like Isaac, it has been an emotional week for me and uh, morning this morning. And part of the emotion uh, this week for me was good emotion, positive emotion. Uh, the second of our three children uh, flew the nest uh, this week. And Mark uh, is down in Santa Barbara at Santa Barbara City College. There's a picture of him here with my friend Darren. And so uh, that was emotional. Uh, this passage has been emotional as I have been praying over it, studying it, reading it this week. And then this morning, I had no plan on uh, having more emotion, but I was sitting this morning. Uh, I, I had no plan on experiencing the emotions I experienced this morning. But I was sitting this morning and reading some of the remembrances in the Wall Street Journal of some of our soldiers who lost their lives recently in Afghanistan. And, you know, I, I've been just going crazy down in Santa Barbara, getting him set up and everything. So I've been kind of detached from the news and from what's going on in the world. And so I had no intention of like catching up on that this morning. But I ended up reading some of these, and um, yeah, I was crying this morning, and it uh, looked like my eyes were racked from smoke, uh, but they weren't. And so God just put this on my heart to pray for some of these folks, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and read one of these uh, remembrances. There's a whole bunch of them in the Wall Street Journal, and I made it through maybe three or four of them before I became aware that people, I was sitting in coffee shop, poor choice, and became aware people might be concerned about me at this point as uh, tears are coming down my face and uh, left. But I want to read to you one of these remembrances. It's uh, from uh, Dylan Marola. Go ahead and forward a slide a couple here, bud, for me if you could do that. We have a picture of him right here. Dylan Marola loved working on the technical side of his high school's theater productions in Rancho Cucamonga, California. And his grandmother, Clorinda Matsuoka, uh, she, said, uh, she said that he loved working on these productions. When churches or dance groups would rent out the high school auditorium, Mr. Marola would act as their sound and lighting technician, she said. He hoped to pursue that kind of work as a career. But first, Mr. Marola wanted to join the military, in large part because of the connection he felt with two great-grandfathers who were Korean War veterans, Miss Matsuoka said. So it's kind of in his blood, she said. He wanted to serve his country. It's all he talked about in high school. She said uh, Mr. Marola was 20 years old and was on his first overseas tour as a Marine. He was due to return to the U.S. in August and had hoped to buy his first car then. Miss Matsuoka said. He planned eventually to go to college. Miss Matsuoka said that her family is in deep pain. We are a very close family, so we all hike together, we fish, we kayak, we barbecue all the time. Where one of us goes, 12 of us go. Now we're minus one. Miss Matsuoka said that Mr. Marola graduated two years ago from Los Osos High School. At its football game on Friday night, 
the school held a moment of silence for Mr. Marola, for other fallen Marines, and for first responders, she said. As I read these this morning and I thought about this, I, I thought about how the scriptures call us um, to weep with those who weep and to pray for those who are hurting. And I'd like to just take a moment now and just pray uh, for these folks. So let's bow our heads together and we'll get into the message. Father in heaven, we're thankful for those who, even at this hour, are serving our country and, in essence, serving Afghans who have stood with us, trying to help them get out of the country. And as they uh, protected that uh, airfield, uh, Lord, to, to help and protect uh, Afghans, uh, they, they lost their lives. And we just lift up those families to you now that are grieving, that are going to be minus one at barbecues, and we pray that you would be with them and that you would strengthen them and they would know that so many um, are with them. An individual just reading of these remembrances in a coffee shop as well as congregations uh, around our country and around the world now. So Lord, be with these, these folks. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as was mentioned, we have a difficult passage today. And chapter 9 of Romans begins with a problem for Paul and a problem for other Jewish Christians in the first century. We looked at this problem last week. Some of you are visiting, so let me just re refresh you. I'm having trouble with this thing. I don't know. Jake, if you want to come grab this thing here and help me get online. Um, so the problem, Romans 9, the beginning of Romans 9, is this. Um, the chosen ones, the people of Israel, have by and large rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And they're perishing. How can this be? How can the chosen ones that have all of this history be rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. And so Paul is responding to that problem in Romans chapter 9. How is it that the overwhelming majority of Israelites are rejecting him and are going to perish? It seems as though God has not followed through on his promise for the nation of Israel, for Israelites. And so we have Romans 9. Now, if you were anything like me, and you or I were going to write Romans 9, which obviously wasn't our task, give me an amen on that, we, we, it wasn't our task to write Romans 9, but if we were, uh, this is kind of what I would do, and maybe what you would do too. I would write something like, Israelites are sinners too, uh, just like non-Israelites. Everyone's free to believe or to re reject Jesus. And most of these Jewish folks in the first century are rejecting Jesus. End of story. God is just. That's really the, the question that is being asked in Romans 9. Is God unjust? No. And that's how we would write Romans 9. But instead, to my surprise, if you're like me, to our surprise, and maybe even to our shock, and for some of us, maybe even to our horror, 
as we read Romans 9. Some people are actually horrified by Romans 9. Romans 9 tells us that God's unconditional election is responsible for both mercy and hardening. We're going to see that really clearly in just a few moments. What I just said has nothing to do with any systematic theological position. It's just what this text says. We're going to see it in a moment. I don't think any of us would have written that. That God's unconditional election is responsible for whom he shows mercy to and whom he hardens. That's how Paul responds to this accusation of God being unjust that that many would be thinking. How he responds to this problem of very few Jews believing in Jesus as Messiah in the first century. In short, in Romans 9, God says, I did that. I did that. It's a difficult text for us. Uh, it, it's a difficult text that so many, so that some folks uh, say that, that it should be discarded. I, I read some commentaries this week that said that this, this is wrong. Romans 9 is false and should be discarded. That's in books that I read this week, commentaries. So what upsets so many? Let's just go straight away to the conclusion here. One of his conclusions. I hope you have your Bibles open or your devices open to Romans 9. Let me read to you verse 18. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is Paul's conclusion. This is what God does. Doug, Doug Moo writes this. He says, God's hardening. You might be asking, what is God's hardening? God's hardening then is an action that renders a person insensitive to God and his word. And that, if not reversed, culminates in eternal damnation. Now, all of us have seen people who are hardened to God, to Jesus, to the gospel. Some of us, when we think about the gospel, when we think about the Jesus of history who suffered and died on the cross, in our place, and rose on the third day. We are overwhelmed by his love and his good news and and, and what happened, his good news of, of a freedom to be found, of forgiveness and freedom of an eternal life in him. But other folks, you share the gospel or they hear about Jesus and they're like, whatever. Yeah, meh, M-E-H, remember that word? Meh, like it doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. They just move on. Just like any other religion, just, okay, that's for you. Meh, whatever. Their hearts are hard. So Paul responds in a way I think none of us would have responded. And the Holy Spirit, who inspired Paul to write this. His conclusion is God shows mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And some people cannot deal with that kind of God. One commentator, he, his comment on this verse, this is what he wrote, a thoroughly immoral doctrine. And then he goes on to talk about how Paul didn't actually write this section of Romans 9, and you can look at the grammar and look at this and see how someone else wrote it, and so just throw this out. Just throw Romans 9 out. That's what he does. We don't do that because... Romans 9 is part of the Bible. And the Bible tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. And so we are not Jeffersonians, and we pick and choose which parts of the Bible 
we are going to submit ourselves to under its authority. This is a very difficult passage. And so the first thing I want to say to you is, uh, well, I mean, I've already said kind of the first thing, like, don't do what, what that guy did. Don't, 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 don't do this, okay, with this passage. Now, under the authority of God's word, Christians have done a lot of different things with Romans 9. They, they have understood it in different ways. And so the first, like, more official thing I want to say to you is to show grace to believers who interpret difficult texts differently than you do. This is a difficult text. This is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible, Romans chapter 9. And you think it's possible that we might have some disagreements about what it's saying? Yes. And do you think we could be gracious to one another uh, when we disagree? Do you think you could be gracious to me if you disagree with what I'm saying today? So God's word calls us uh, to, to be gentle and lowly in heart. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. We should not be harsh about God's word and the truths that it teach, and these are difficult ones. So all of that, uh, by way of introduction, I kind of jumped ahead to a conclusion. Let's go back to the beginning of today's unit of Scripture. For those of you visiting, we just go through the Bible here, each unit of Scripture at a time. And so today's unit begins at verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me. Paul writes, What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. So what's going on here? Verse 14. Paul is using this literary technique that is, that is common in first century Greek literature called a diatribe or called a bunch of different things. And it's when you, you speak to your opponent, whether he's real or imaginary. Like this is what the opponent would say. And so I'm going to quote him and then I'm going to respond to it. So the opponent or the person who disagrees with Romans 9 is going to be saying, what? Is God unjust? That's so that's not what Paul's saying. That's what he's putting on those who are rejecting what he's saying. And what did Paul just say? Let's go back and look at verse 11, last week's passage. So this is what he said in verse 11. Before the twins were born, uh, that's Jacob and Esau, before they were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, by, by God's divine election, she was told, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So for those of you that weren't here last week, what we saw is Jacob, who's an Israelite, was a child of the promise and part of God's family. And Esau was not. He was an Israelite, but he was not part of God's family. He was not a child of the promise, even though he was a physical descendant of Abraham. And Paul is using this to explain the original problem at the beginning of Romans 9 that so few Jews are believing in Jesus as the Messiah. He's saying, guys, I'm in charge. Remember Isaac? Remember Jacob and Esau, rather? Remember? And this is what Paul's doing. So now in verse 14, he's saying, okay, some people are going to hear this and they're going to go, is God unjust? That's not just. That is not just. So what he's saying in verse 14 is the opponent's charge to Paul, to Romans 9, would be this. The pronouncement of divine justice upon a human prior to his birth is immoral, unjust, and unrighteous. This is the charge that Paul is theorizing 
readers of Romans 9 are going to take. And Paul answers immediately this theoretical or actual opponent and says, no, not at all. God is not unjust. And then he goes on to define and defend God's justice. And that's what we're going to look at now. So this, um, this defense begins in verse 15. So he's quoting Exodus 33. Look at your Bibles or devices here in verse 15. For he says to Moses, quoting Exodus 33, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God is the one who chooses who he's going to show mercy to. He is sovereign. He is unconditionally the one to decide. So what is God not saying here? Before I kind of summarize what he just said and and what he's going to say further, so what is Paul's defense is not this. Okay, this is not what Romans 9 is saying, but as Americans, and I think when I say Americans, making a lot of assumptions here, but we are the most powerful country in the world. We value liberty and freedom. And if you've traveled to other countries, you may know we kind of have the reputation of like, we're in charge. We're, we're, we come in and, and, and we save things and fix things. The irony of that right now. But that's uh, kind of our reputation. And what I'm saying is that that impacts you and me psychologically who we are and how we see ourselves. And so we are particularly, many of us, against what Romans 9 says because of who we are. And it's really hard to see who we are as Americans unless you travel around the world and and allow others to see us as we see ourselves. So the way that we would want to write Romans 9, what we expect to be here isn't here. And I'm saying we as American Christians. Paul's defense here in Romans 9 is not based on God's foreknowledge of Esau's rebellion. He goes out of his way to say this was before he was born. This is not based on anything he did. This is all me. I show mercy on whom I want to show mercy. It's not based on his foreknowledge of Esau's rebellion. It's not based on Esau's freedom. Okay, we're going to get God off the hook. He's not unjust because the fault lies with Esau. That is not Paul's argument in Romans 9. That might be your argument. You may want that argument. That argument ain't here. It's the furthest from that, what we read in Romans 9. Or the reality that God is outside of time. Is God outside of time? Yes. Does he see past, present, future? Yes. I mean, how do we even process that? But that's true. But that's not Paul's arguments in Romans 9 to defend that God's not unjust. That God is actually a just God. That is not his argument. So if that's not what his defense is, what is Paul's defense? Well, he starts it, we've already looked at it in verse 15. It's just the absolute sovereignty of God. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So continuing on, let's look at verses 16 through 18. He he doesn't back up at all from this line of reasoning. He doubles down. And goes further and harder about the absolute sovereignty of God. Verse 16. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort. 
but on God's mercy. He is responding to the opponent would say, yeah, God's just. It's the people who did this. That's how we get God off the hook. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. We should ask and answer the question, what does the it refer to? The it refers to the distribution of mercy. God's bestowal of mercy does not depend on man's desire or on man's effort. Do you see that? Now, we don't like that. That's what this text says. It's saying God is ultimate. Uh, Those of you that want to leave, hang on. We'll balance some things later, but right now, you need to just receive what this says. He has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. Well, it's really based on the freedom that we have and that he looks down the quarter of time and sees No, it doesn't depend on man's desire or woman's desire. It doesn't depend on what's inside of us. And then effort, it doesn't depend on what we actually do. It depends on God's mercy. That's what this text is actually saying in verse 16. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he didn't show mercy to Pharaoh. He hardened his heart. And he's saying, I did this to display my power. There is the power of God displayed. We don't have time to go through all that story, but it's a pretty dramatic story with a lot of no's and a lot of rebellion and a lot of plagues. He's saying, I displayed my power in you so that it would be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 18, we've already read it. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And then Paul doubles down and adds, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is a difficult passage for probably people of many cultures. It's especially difficult for us as Americans. So Paul's defense is that God's sovereign work of mercy and his work of hardening is it's unconditional and it's his alone. What he is saying here, and one of the things that we need to embrace is something we don't think about a whole lot. I have two things to say in this section. One is, God owes no one salvation. He owes no one salvation. Nobody. We have this tendency to to think that there's this fairness and we're blank slates and, and everybody finds their own way. Whereas the scriptures teach that we are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. And, and we all deserve that. He doesn't owe us anything. And so we have to come from that perspective rather than our powerful, we'll come in and fix everything, everyone's a blank slate and we'll find our way, American sort of perspective. The second thing that he's saying in verses 16 through 18 in Romans 9 is that God is ultimate in salvation. God is ultimate in the miraculous work of salvation. That is what Romans 9 is saying very clearly. Augustine uh, puts it this way. He says this, Here was the place for him to answer, for him, Paul, to answer that God foreknew the merits of every man. And that's how we get him off the hook. He's a just God because he foreknew what they were going to do. And this is why Esau went that way. Still, he does not say this, but he takes refuge in God's judgment and mercy. 
This is what is happening in Romans chapter 9. So Paul's defense is that God's sovereign work of mercy is unconditional and it's his alone. So what I've been getting at is that you and I may need a revolution in the orientation of our thinking about a human's condition. Because of our culture, because of things we may not even be able to articulate, we think of humans as a blank slate and they can become whatever they want to be. You can be whatever you want to be. I could be a symphony conductor and play beautiful music and be a soloist and sing beautiful music. Right? My family? Right? No, I can't. I'm not gifted like that. When I sing, I need to move away from my family if they want to sing. I'm getting off my manuscript here. We need a revolution about humans' natural condition. From blank slates to more unpopular teaching from the Bible here, but truth, that we are children of wrath. Children of wrath. Paul says this in Ephesians 2. We all once were by nature, who we are as human beings, children of wrath. We're rebels. Our DNA goes back to Adam, Romans 5. Paul is including himself in that. We were once by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Why am I emphasizing this? I am emphasizing this because we can only see God's justice if we recognize that we all deserve his punishment. We all deserve it. We're not blank slates. So this helps us, I think, to come to grips with what is being taught in Romans 9 very clearly. So yesterday, uh, children of wrath, yesterday I was at a birthday party for my grandniece. I know I looked way too young to have a grandniece, but I have one. And uh, my nephew's daughter, we're at her uh, birthday party yesterday. She's two years old. And we are singing happy birthday to her in this living room. There's about 20 family members there. And it was like a special moment. Like, I'm not going to forget this. We're, we're all singing happy birthday. We've all done this a million times for family members and friends and so on. And at two years old, she's sitting there with her cake. And she's got her smile. And, she's, and all of a sudden, it just like hits her. And you just see her head spin. And she, she like makes eye contact with all 20 people in her smile. She, you could see her brain. She couldn't articulate it. But her brain was going, every one of these people loves me and are singing to me. And, and you could just, you could see her thinking that. We just kept singing, but we all stopped. Like, you know, the video of my wife's watching the video of this this morning. It was texted to her by her grandpa and just, it, it, it was just beautiful. So why am I talking about this? I mean, I want to just talk about it. So that's, and you, you guys can't leave and you're just captive. So that's one reason I'm talking about it. But here's another reason I'm talking about it. She's made in God's image. She's full of, of beauty and, and fearfully and wonderfully made. She's experiencing this love of her family and, 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 and just precious. She's also a child of wrath, like you and me, and desperately needs when she can to believe the gospel and come to know her creator 
and her Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. She needs to profess faith in him. We don't tend to look at our two-year-olds like that, do we? Sometimes we do. Yeah, yeah, the mothers are going, actually, you're not around very much, are you, two-year-olds? Moms and grandmas are like, yeah, child of wrath actually fits. Um, yeah, yeah, there's a couple sides to that coin. I'm, I'm looking at the side of the, just the beauty of children and our tendency to think of them as black, blank slates and they're going to find their way and we'll just see how they find their way. They need to experience the miracle of salvation. They need to believe in Jesus Christ. They're all children of wrath. What I'm trying to say, church, is if we don't believe that, we're going to end up like, the, like this guy, uh, like this guy here. If we don't understand, if we don't have a right anthropology, we're going to be messed up and we're going to struggle with Romans 9. It is not a thoroughly immoral doctrine if all of us deserve his justice. And by his grace and mercy, he chooses to show it to some of us and we just don't have any clue why and it doesn't seem fair to us. And that's how he rolls. This is what God is emphasizing in this Difficult passage of Romans 9. American Christians need a revolution in their orientation of a human's natural condition. We're not blank slates that can become anything we want to. We have limitations because we are all made differently. And our spiritual and eternal destinies are not just up to us. They are up to us. That's, I'll balance that in a moment. But in Romans 9... That message isn't here in Romans 9. It's in other parts of the scripture, but it's not in Romans 9. Romans 9 is telling us it has to do with God, and he is ultimate in what is going on. So, let's see here. I lost track. Where am I? Um, Did I make it through 18? Yeah, so we're at verse 19, right? Yes. Say yes. We're at verse 19. So now he's had his first opponent, his first theoretical opponent using this literary technique, now his second opponent. You know, whether this is real or imagined, these are probably real arguments that were around in first century Rome or in Corinth as Paul's writing to Roman Christians and house churches in Rome. These are arguments that are real arguments, but he's, he's just kind of putting them in the text here. So one of you will say to me, verse 19, then why does God still blame us? Why does he blame us? If he shows mercy on whose he shows mercy, if he, if he chose Jacob, but he didn't choose Esau, why does he blame us? For who resists his will? You can't resist his will, so we're not to blame. We're not to blame. God's to blame. That's how the opponent would respond to Romans 9, to Paul's teaching. So just to, to summarize that, the second charge in Romans 9 from the opponent says, is, is God cannot cast blame upon Esau, upon Pharaoh, upon anyone. It's... There's, there's no blameworthiness if, 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 if God does this. And so Paul's response, again, is not the way I would write this, probably not the way you would write this. So, um, you know, even before we get to his response, let me once again just say what his response is not. Paul's defense is not that Esau hardened himself. That is not Paul's response in Romans 9. It's not here that it's Esau's fault. Now, it's true that Pharaoh and Esau both hardened themselves and rebelled. 
That's true. But that's not here in this text. You know, one of the things that helped me, one of the people that helped me to come to terms with Romans 9, and some of us like, okay, this isn't that big a deal. Why are you spending so much time on this? Others of us, this is like a big deal, and we're up at night like trying to figure out how do I come to terms with this? And I was one of those latter ones, spending a lot of time in this. So how did I come to terms with the difficult truths taught in Romans 9? And one of the people that helped me was Augustine. And he said something when I first read it, I thought that's not true, and then I came to actually believe, yeah, that is true. And it's more, a little bit more philosophical than it is tied directly to Scripture, but he was wrestling with these texts, and he actually totally switched his thinking on these texts. And he would preach a sermon much more eloquently and beautifully, but he would preach a sermon similarly to what I did back in, in the first few centuries of the church in North Africa where he was a pastor. And he came to the conclusion philosophically, that something can be necessary, Esau is not chosen, and it can be voluntary that Esau rebels against God, that something can be both necessary and voluntary. Now, before I read Augustine, I thought of those two things as mutually exclusive. Something cannot be, if it is necessary, by definition, it's not then voluntary. All right. Falling asleep? Are you still tracking with me here? Say, say yes, I'm tracking with you. So, an example. Augustine wouldn't use this example, but let me give you an example. You know, people who are normal people, they enjoy things like mountain biking. <laughs> people that are abnormal people, they like drive down to Stockton and Lodi, they get into these old airplanes, and they jump out of them. For fun. Anybody here done that? Oh, one has. Anybody? Yeah, okay. I'll meet with you guys after the service in my office. Three of you have. That, that's crazy to me. But people enjoy doing that. Some of them are here with us today. You know I'm just being silly here. It's good to have fun doing it. Right? Right? You guys, I love you. I love you so on. I'm being silly. But I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. People who love doing that, when they jump out of the airplane and before they deploy their parachute... They want to fall whatever, how many ever feet you fall until you pull the cord and, and you land safely on the ground. They want to do that. It's voluntary. As crazy as it is to me to think it's voluntary, they're doing it voluntarily. But it's also necessary that they fall to the ground. They're going to fall. There's this gravity thing. And so I'm just saying that to say something can be both voluntary and necessary. And what I am saying is that even with the ultimate sovereignty emphasis that we have in Romans 9, it is, doesn't exclude Esau from rejecting God and voluntarily going against him. These things go together. So Paul's defense is not that Esau hardened himself. That's what I'm trying to say there. Last few verses and we'll finish up. Let's move forward to verses 20 through 23. So after this charge, here's Paul's response. But who are you? And this is emphatic. So this is to you and me. This is the reader. Paul's, Paul's making this you emphasized here. Who are you, Mike? Who are you, insert your name, O man, O woman, to talk back to God? A newer translation puts it this way, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? 
Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? God is sovereign and all-powerful. And he is sovereign over this. This, what is this? Showing mercy and hardening. That is Paul's argument in Romans 9. And we ought not to criticize or be against him for what he does. That is Paul's response. So Paul's defense is that humans are in no position to judge God's sovereign choices. Let's come back and finish up the text here. Where did I? I left off at verse 20. Look at 21. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common uses? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath? So here again is some language I'm saying where we need a change of perspective. The perspective that Romans 9 is giving us is that God has not been this wicked tyrant who's moving around puppets. That's not the, the, the way we should read Romans 9. What we should read Romans 9 is he is incredibly patient. And at any point of history, he could have just shown justice to every human being. But he has waited and continues to wait a long time with great patience over objects of his wrath that are prepared for destruction. Verse 23, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? So this is the perspective that God has been incredibly patient with those that he's not going to show mercy to, those like Pharaoh and Esau. So, in conclusion here, to wrap this up, and now I'm going to bring some balance. There isn't a lot of balance in Romans 9. There is balance in the New Testament and in the Bible. But in Romans 9, we are getting one side of things. So here's balance as we close. God leaves the Christ follower affirming two truths that involve realities beyond reason. One of the truths is the unconditional divine election that we read about in Romans 9 that just seems really clear, as much as I would not have written it this way myself, it just seems really clear to me what Paul is saying. He is absolutely sovereign. On the other side of things, you and I are completely free. And the Bible is almost always speaking in this kind of language, assuming the freedom that we have. Freedom to do what we want, to believe what we want. Esau was free, I believe. And he was not shown mercy. The Bible just presents both of these realities that I want to suggest are not unreasonable, but they are beyond reason. When we are talking about um, this category of things, things before the foundation of the world, God's eternal decree, we are talking about really difficult things. That's not where the Bible normally operates. Where the Bible normally, normally operates is here in the freedom that we have to respond to the good news of the gospel. And we've got to respond to that. 
1 John 5, 11 and 12, and this is the testimony God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is how the Bible normally operates. It occasionally goes and talks about before the foundation of the world and eternal decrees and divine election. That's what we have in Romans 9. Both of these things are affirmed. And Paul is not interested in trying logically to tell us how they go together. They're just both here. And we, I believe, should embrace them both. We'll give Doug Moo the final word here. He says it this way, what I've just said. Paul is content to hold the truths of God's absolute sovereignty. That's Romans 9 right here. In both election and hardening. That's Romans 9. And Paul is absolutely content to hold the truth of human responsibility, of freedom, of blameworthiness, of praiseworthiness. We aren't puppets. We're free. We're blameworthy. We're, we're praiseworthy. And the Bible just presents both of these things without reconciling them. We would do well, Doug Moo says, to emulate his approach. That is the Apostles Paul's approach. That is the Holy Spirit's approach who inspired all of Scripture, including Romans 9. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word, even for really difficult passages like this that have caused so much disagreement across the centuries among church leaders, among individuals. Lord, help us to be gracious to one another as we try to work through them. Help us to be faithful to the text of scripture. And like the apostle Paul, God, help us not to spend too much time in our lives on these things about eternal decrees and election, but help us to be like Paul and spend the time of loving God and loving our neighbors and making disciples. Paul was just so eager to get to places where there was no churches, no gospel, so that he could win others to Christ in the freedom and liberty that God gave them. It seems impossible to reconcile these things, God, in our minds, but we see them both as true. Help us to be like Paul and to do all that we can to be witnesses for you and to win others to this good news of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.